the memories. The clock is down to 48 seconds. 20 to 10, Colorado leads Nebraska. They have waited a long time for this. So many times, the red flood has come into Folsom Field, and they have gone back across the border to the north, a winner. It won't be this time. The Stories. Brucott to the corner for Carrington, intercepted! Colorado got it! Witherspoon! With the biggest play in Colorado football for years! And now, as a supplement to over 40 years worth of CU football coverage in the CU at the Game archives, here is Stewart with his CU at the Game podcast. Greetings, Buff fans from CU at the Game. This is Stuart Whitehair, publisher and editor for the CU at the Game website and your host for the CU at the Game podcast. With this episode, Brad and I will take a look at the CU Spring Showcase, the 15th and last practice for CU Spring Football 2021. With a dozen starters out and lacking two full sets of offensive linemen, the 2021 Spring Showcase was never destined to be a full spring game. But there was some excitement, and there's no denying it was nice to be able to walk into Folsom Field for the first time in 18 months and get a chance to watch our buffs in action. In addition to a unit-by-unit review of the CU Spring game, Brad and I take a look at the ongoing search for a new Pac-12 commissioner and the ever-present debate as to the almost inevitable move of college football to an expanded playoff. Did the Buffs settle on a primary challenger to Sam Neuer at quarterback? Did Darren Cheverini's offense show it's destined to improve over 2020's mediocre numbers? Let's find out. Okay, and we're not only back, but we are actually together. Uh, I don't know how many times. This is the first time that we've actually done a podcast in person. It is kind of strange to look you directly in the eye while we do this. We'll see if that uh, restrains me in any way. See if that makes it any better. We won't promise any extra quality, but we are here in Highlands Ranch, Colorado, to talk about the CU Spring Showcase. Not a spring game. Not a spring scrimmage, but a spring showcase. First of all, I mean, we both know, and most bus fans would be perfectly content with the idea that this was not going to be anything near the idea of uh, a full spring game. And we were not going to learn that much about the offense, certainly more than the Northern Colorado coaches and the Texas A&M coaches were going to get out of this uh, televised event. But still, overall... Impressions? Favorable? Generally, yeah. You know, obviously, everybody's eye was drawn to the backup quarterback battle or the quarterback battle in waiting. I thought both Lewis and JT Shrout had their moments. The play calling was deliberately designed to keep things short and out in front. We didn't have a lot in the 11-on-11 of deep passes. But each had drives where they were able to be on target and move the ball. And I don't think either one separated themselves, but I don't think either one embarrassed themselves either. Yeah, no interceptions, uh, one touchdown pass. And actually, the the one touchdown pass, even though it was just a three-yard pass, I think was probably the one of the better plays of the day. We, we talked about that again. We 
rewatch the the event and watching it from the stands um, from the senior section, and it's only been thirty something you know, years since uh, <laughs> sat in the senior section. Had a really good angle of Shrout pedaling back with the pressure. You could not see even where he was throwing the ball. Found Alec Pell tight end in the back of the end zone. So it was only a three-yard touchdown pass, but I think it uh, was a quality throw. I mean, a quality play on behalf of our transfer quarterback. Yeah, and the play, it was not set up for a lot of um, improvisation because of uh, limitations on the rush. And by the way, on that play, Carson Wells not only beat the, the tackle, but destroyed the running back trying to help the tackle. But that really was Shrout showing some off-the-cuff athleticism, which we really wanted to see. You know, um, and he did have some good out patterns, you know, showed, showed some good arm strength. But the passing game overall, I think we both were fairly disappointed in the fact that there were no deep passes. Uh, there's one deep pass attempt to a tight end, but um, did not try and stretch the defense in any way, shape, or form. No, I mean, it was, it, it had that been a real game, the safeties would have been standing on the linebacker's shoulders yes. um, with no need to guard deep. Yes. Um, Wouldn't have been seven or eight in the box, it would have been 11 in the box. <laughs> yes, yes. And uh, so hopefully somewhere in the playbook is Brendan Rice or Dimitri Stanley running more than eight yards past the line of scrimmage. Yes, we'll just uh, hope that that was a camouflage move for the Texas A&M coaches and just hope for the best. So, Brendan Lewis did have some moments, uh, showed one play, had a good moves with his feet. And again, with the quarterbacks not being touched, there were some sacks that were credited. And we don't know if there would have been other sacks. We don't know if they've gotten away, those types of plays. But I think you're, you're right. It wasn't that either player necessarily impressed, but neither player embarrassed themselves. That there was no clear misreads, there were no clear... <laughs> Poor passes, there were no clear mistakes, I guess. At least, I'm sure the coaches watching the film will find plenty of mistakes, but at least to the casual fan that wasn't anything out of the ordinary or anything that you would hope is, you know, that you wouldn't see at the end of 15 practices in spring. Well, there were times when you could see each quarterback look off and go to their second receiver, move a little bit in the pocket, be able to find better options. And that's nice to see. I mean, it really begins to feel, at least right now, that all three of the competitive quarterbacks are kind of at the same tier, which we would love for one to separate. But on the other hand, there doesn't seem to be much drop-off either. Yeah. And that's probably one of the biggest concerns going into the fall is not that we have three good quarterbacks, but that we have three good quarterbacks that... You have three B-plus quarterbacks where, in a perfect world, we'd have an A, a B, and a C. And, you know, the old saying, if you don't have any, you know, three quarterbacks, you don't have any quarterbacks. Hope there will be some separation in the first two weeks of August. And by August 15th, we will have some quarterback competition resolution so that we can go into the season with either our our reigning Pac-12 second-team quarterback, or someone's going to come in and beat him out of a job. Yeah, and that's the key. We didn't get to see the guy who should be our A quarterback. He was out. You know, we were trying to figure out who was going to either back him up or challenge him. 
nothing we saw today makes you think that Shrout or Lewis are perceptibly better than Sam Neuer. Yeah. Um, so I think he probably goes into the fall as the presumptive starter. I, I think that was the case 15 practices ago, and I think that's going to be the case now. On the running backs, the starting running back, again, the reigning Pac-12 Offense Player of the Year, did not participate. Uh, bum ankle is all we've been told. Nothing serious, just no reason to have him participating when there's nothing for him to prove. Um, was there anything out of the running back play that stood out to you or did not stand out to you? And again, it's hard to tell because the line is having some issues. Right. Um, I thought Fontenot ran with some good authority at times. Um, Clayton, who in the past has had a tendency to cut or dance a little bit, seemed to be a little bit more one cut and move play. So, again, in running back, there is a clear separation. Given everything we've both seen and heard from Roussard, he will be the starter. But the idea that Fontenot and Clayton are there to back up, and the reality is if either one of them had to start a game or two, I think the offense would continue to operate. Yeah. You know, Alex Fontenot, leading rusher in 2019, over 800 yards. We didn't get to see that competition last year with Fontenot out for the season. Clayton was on the squad last year, coming in as a true freshman, playing again as a freshman. So, yeah, without Broussard playing at all in the spring showcase, there is nothing to compare in terms of apples and apples. But, yeah, there are a few plays that Fontenot had a few good runs. I thought Clayton really did, of the running backs, at least to me, he stood out the most. A lot of running backs got a lot of time. I don't know if that was just a swan song for some of the running backs that are not going to be participating in fall camp much and not going to be participating on the field other than uh, special teams. But, yeah, I think the running backs, like you say, that's a nice problem to have that – we have quality running backs. That's where you can have three B-plus players and have it work for you, as opposed to the quarterback where you really want to have the A player because you can have different talents going in, different skill sets. We can have the third down back. You can have the third and long back. You know, there's a difference between having stacks in at third and one or having maybe Clayton or Joe Davis at third and long, you know, in there for screen passes or something like that. So, yeah, nothing bad. Um, coming out of the running back room, wide receivers didn't really see, didn't really have much of a chance um, to see much in the way of the wide receivers today. No, there were a couple in the drills where they looked good. Um, of course, we had the scary moment with Dimitri Stanley, who did a face first into the wall, but seemed to walk that off. Yeah. There were some decent catches, um, not deep. They weren't challenging deep, but, and then, uh, the most exciting moment for any wide receiver is when they went into punt formation and Rice is back receiving <laughs> the play. Those are going to be some fun moments if he turns out to be the punt returner this year. Yeah, I think that'd be scary if I was on the opposition worrying about that coming along. And yeah, there were a few good catches. Stanley had a few cup, you know, catches. Levante Chenault certainly looked the part. Don't know how his off-the-field incidents are going to affect his playing time this fall, but at least for now, he seems to be doing his thing for the team, and he was in the practices and got 
one of the academic players of the week, you know, for his work in the classroom. So hopefully he's turned a corner in that respect off the field and we'll just be able to enjoy him on the field. And of course the tight end position that we (laughs) joke about, laugh about, enjoy and pretend that someday it will actually become a functioning part of the Colorado offense. It looked like, This might be part of the, even if it's just generic, it's part of the Colorado offense going forward. Brady Russell didn't participate, but other tight ends did, and other tight ends had had good days. Fourier, uh, I think, stood out to me that the tight ends had an integral role in the scrimmage, and for the most part, it looked like played pretty well. I would firmly agree with that. As we were talking earlier, if there are times – this year, when we line up in two tight end set, and you have Fourier on one side and Russell on the other, you might actually see a pass. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Fourier is not, I think, as big as his father was, yeah. but he seems to have some of that want to. He made a couple of nice catches. He made a couple of plays where he turned upfield right after he caught the pass. He has a great technique of looking the ball into his hands. So I would be surprised if he doesn't see the ball some. But then again, I'm always surprised that the court, the tight ends never see the ball. <laughs> yes. So, yeah, it would be interesting with, you know, 12 tight ends on the roster currently. And Carl Durrell, of course, right after he said that he did one of 12 tight ends, went out and recruited another freshman. So we'll have to see how the tight end room looks in another month. First of all, I don't think we're going to have – even Colorado said we're not going to have 12 tight ends in August. So which one will be moving on and which ones will actually be able to contribute? But Brady Russell was having a good first game and a half, if you can say the 2020 season was a game and a half, looked like he was going to be a big part of the offense. So, yeah, if you can get 48 to play, and, of course, we've got some freshmen, you know, the Eric Olson's one of the highest-rated recruits from the 2021 class coming in. So maybe, maybe, maybe this will be the decade of the tight end at the (laughs) University of Colorado. We've got lots of youth and lots of talent. Now we just have to find a way to get them the ball. Well, Uh, and you know, one of the things that I think everybody can agree on is that as much as we love Darren Cheverini for his recruiting, for his enthusiasm, for his dear love of dear old CU, he's got to call better games. And he has to find a way. It's his job to find a way to get some of those 12 tight ends in. It's his way to find a way to get Brendan Rice and Chenault in space. And I think he was honest about he needed to get better. In terms of the short passing game today, they looked better than they had in the past. Um, Hopefully he can figure out some way to get the ball down the field. Yeah, well... If that's our offense, then we're hoping that teams will get tired of having us dink and dunk and go down for 10 play drives and then stack the line, and then we'll just throw 80-yard passes to Brendan Rice and LaVisca Chenault and Dimitri Stanley. Of course, the overriding factor in you know the offense was the lack of depth on the offensive line, and that showed on some of the running plays, certainly showed on some of the pass protection. So really can't even grade the – performance on a curve until you get your offensive linemen back and 
really get a feel for who your starting five are going to be and how that's going to play out. So the fact that you're second team Pac-12 quarterback, your Pac-12 offensive player of the year, your best tight end, lots of players were not playing on the offense. I don't know how much we can say about the defense as a whole. Anything stand out? Nothing. Didn't hear a lot of names, you know, in terms of defensive line. You didn't hear anybody's name being called out. The linebackers seem to have the the best of it today. But that is the design of this defense as well. I think we are going to see more and more, with the exception of Terrence Lang, who didn't play today. Who didn't play, yes. Um, That the defensive line's job is to stop the run and open up lanes for the linebackers to play. And that actually seemed to work today. I mean, Carson Wells remains the second most talented linebacker on the uh, on the roster and one of the most talented linebackers in the Pac-12. But Van Deest seems to be playing very well. The kid from Oklahoma. Robert um, Barnes. Robert Barnes, everybody speaks highly of, that he's got a good work ethic. He seems to be a downhill player. I think there will be running backs in the Pac-12 who will meet him at full speed and come away not well for it. Yes. <laughs> And yeah, and the two of the potential starting linebackers, you know, Nate Landman, of course, and he seems to be well on his way on his rehab. And I think we talked about it before we got on the air that if anybody's going to make it back, it's going to be somebody that has the work ethic of a Nate Landman. You mentioned Terrence Lang didn't play. Uh, we got the linebacker from Notre Dame, Lamb, coming in. Obviously, he wasn't here for the spring. So, Maybe even half of the starting defense wasn't on the field. And at least some of the better players on the defense weren't on the field. So, yeah, it was a scrimmage. And overall, other than, again, Dimitri Stanley taking a header into the side of the wall, but it looked like he got up, you know, and was joking around. And they certainly didn't have to cart him off. They weren't too concerned about it. They weren't isolating or immobilizing him or any way. So I think it was just one of those things where, you know, you get your head stung when you <laughs> run into a concrete wall. That tends to happen. So unless there is the one and one drills, there were a couple of times that Christian Gonzalez again showed there was one time he was clearly beat off the line. And when Shrout was a beat late in throwing the pass, Gonzalez had caught up. Quarterback is about Attitude as much as it is about talent. And I nothing we've seen from Christian Gonzalez says that he doesn't have the perfect attitude for that position. Yes. No, I, I, I'm pretty optimistic. We still have to see the play from the safeties. And, of course, the defensive line, you're going to hear this again and again from now until it's not an issue anymore, you know, until the defensive line can show that it can play without Mustafa Johnson and can, you know, hold up its end of the bargain. The linebacker core, the cornerbacks, our strengths – Safety still an issue. Defensive line still an issue. But with the COVID year and having so many players coming back, there's so much more depth. And I think you're going to see that in the Pac-12. I think you're going to see the, don't want to say this in you know public, but you know the lower end of the Pac-12 be closer to the top end of the Pac-12 because USC doesn't have to worry about players going off to the NFL or leaving or reloading or whatever, because they've got four-star players as backups. 
and Colorado has to develop those players over the course of three or four seasons, and they don't all develop in the same time frame. So you have good players, and then they leave, and now you're stuck with the development project. And now we're going to have a lot more depth and a lot more talent, even in the backup position. So certainly some optimism. I like the fact that we got out, presumably without any major injuries through the spring, at least not that we heard of in terms of torn ACLs or anybody that's going to be lost. Yes, there were some, there were a dozen players that didn't participate in some or all of the spring, but mostly it was either players we knew about, like Nate Landman or Jarek Broussard. They were just held out for precautionary reasons. So if we can go forward with, you know, 88 healthy players, then CU's chances this fall are pretty good. It does feel like, you know, CU has always been able to find a couple guys, you know, Nate Landman, that kind of player, but that there was a significant drop-off. It feels like the average is farther along the curve, that there are guys in almost every position who are second and even third stringers who you can have confidence can come in. Now, last year we saw what it was like trying to replace Landman. But they went and found not one, not two, but three guys in the transfer portal who can step in now. We hope Lamb can. I think we know that Van Beest can and um, Robert Barnes. Barnes. So it feels like, again, like we're closer. We're not there, but it does feel closer. Okay. Well, let's talk a little bit about off the field stuff. And I shouldn't say stuff because that doesn't make me sound like a good host. (laughs) Off the field stuff. What's going to be the most newsworthy as we wind down spring practices and start looking at the offseason, waiting for the Athlons and Lindys to come out and hit our magazine stands, is the replacement as Pac-12 commissioners Larry Scott is stepping down officially June 30th. The idea was that there was going to be a transition period that the Pac-12 wanted to have a replacement in place in time for there to be some transition with Larry Scott. And I know you've got some opinions as to how well the Pac-12 is coming along in its search for a new commissioner. There are times that you trust the people in power who have told you and shown you that even if you do not fully understand and know everything about how the process works, that because of their history, you figure those people are going to get it right. None of that applies to the Pac-12 presidents. <laughs> Not one of those. Um, so the idea that they're going to buy a co-commissioner or try to figure out some new structure, the idea that the Pac-12 presidents are going to reinvent the conference commissioner, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they are all, they are all unquestionably smarter than I am. But so far, there's not a human being in the world other than perhaps those 12 people who thinks they've done anything about this in any way right since they made the completely correct decision to fire Larry Scott. Yes. So one thing they're looking at, I guess, you know, not necessarily a football person and the comments made in the message boards. It's like, can you imagine the SEC having an SEC commissioner hire that has no background in football? We're certainly looking at the necessity of having someone who can negotiate good contracts and understands the big picture about the Pac-12. What 
are the characteristics of a, an ideal PAC-12 commissioner that the PAC-12 search committee seems to be lacking. Okay, first of all, I will not minimize how hard it is to be a conference commissioner. You are dealing with, in this case, 12 presidents, which is like herding cats, except every cat thinks it's smarter than any other cat that ever walked down the street. Obviously, if you take a very crass view of it, their job is to improve the financial circumstance of the Pac-12. They have to get a better TV deal. They have to figure out how to get football and basketball on TV at times when people will watch them. They have to figure out probably how to be appropriately promoting the women's sports and the non-revenue sports. Well, that seems to have been the focus for the first decade of the Pac-12 is that our Olympic sports are much better than everyone else. We are the Conference of Champions, and therefore everyone will want to watch women's field hockey (laughs) or lacrosse or the swim meets or gymnastics. And lo and behold, you know, they had ratings that did not actually register. They did not even hit the Richter scale of uh, even noting that even the parents were watching that and you watch the Pac-12 networks and all you're seeing is promotions for other Pac-12 network shows. Yeah. Not even ad, they're not even advertising on there or if it is it's the same sort of advertising you see on late night television you almost have to wonder if Ginzu knives are going to make a comeback on the Pac-12 network <laughs> or pocket fishermen for those <laughs> of you Popeil of our, pocket fishermen of our age. Yes. That, um. uh, so what what is I mean time zones have always been the same. Mm-hmm. Yet there was a time in the world where the Pac-12, Pac-8, Pac-10 was more relevant in the grand scheme of things. So is it just moving to the championship series, the BCS, moving to the bowls, away from the bowls and moving towards having the playoffs that the Pac-12 has been out of it? And that's what's made this shift of interest away from Pac-12? Because you know, when USC was under John McKay or USC was under Pete Carroll, Pete Carroll or Washington was good or Oregon under Chip Kelly, it wasn't like they were playing in the Midwest at the time. So it's not the fact that Eugene and Seattle and Los Angeles are in the Pacific time zone. It's that nobody wants to watch games in the Pacific time zone. So you hear from John Wilner all the time ad nauseum that USC football and UCLA basketball have to be superstars and relevant to make the rest of the conference relevant. Is that a valid argument in the world of the college football playoff when only four teams are in? Well, we'll talk in a minute about where the four teams are going to be in. But yeah, to some extent, somebody has to be at the end of the season a competitor, a consideration. And it happens that at the, at the same time that the TV networks were getting more complicated, that the SEC was expanding, Pac-12 football went into a bit of a slump. And yeah, nobody on the East Coast is going to stay up till midnight to watch number 28 Utah or, you know, number 26 USC. I don't know that it is even, obviously it would be Best for the numbers if it's USC or Washington or even Oregon, which has built a national following. But I think if Colorado or Arizona State are in the top 10, 
I think there will be viewing. Now, basketball, given the success in the tournament this year, one would hope that we can continue to get some sort of viewing. Um, I think the Pac-12 will get more respect there. Um, yeah, UCLA is number one in some of the preseason right. polls, which seems a little odd to me since they were the number 11 seed. And, they and lost the, their best player to the NBA. But, yeah. <laughs> well, several other you know, yeah. players to the NBA. But we'll – can't really dive too much into basketball at this point, but yeah, the, Little, the idea, go, go Tad. But other go, than that, yeah, Tad, Tad's Tad for King. Um, you know, go Buffs with uh, you know top ten recruiting class. Who knew? Whoever saw that coming? Uh, but yes, the idea that UCLA, if they're going to be number one, they're going to have ESPN coverage every time they play, or even if they're number five. But Again, does it have to be the brand name? Because remember when Utah was a good, a top five team mm-hmm. several years ago. Again, our, our good friend Paul Feinbaum, who this week called Nebraska fans delusional. And <laughs> we all celebrated Paul Feinbaum for his truth telling, truth telling and wicked, witty ways, was saying that nobody on the planet wants to see Utah in the college football playoff. And that wasn't too far from being a true statement. Unfortunately, that is true. You know, Paul Feinbaum's bias is never hidden. Well, he yeah. went to Tennessee and he's the SEC guy. Yes. Right. And uh, But I don't think that is true. I do think that good football leads to good ratings. I think that that said, if you don't have good football right now, there is room for better marketing, for better decisions, for, God save us, noon games. Yeah, and I'm not opposed. I mean, just from a personal standpoint, the 10 a.m. and Carl Rell seems to be thinking ahead that that's going to happen. If Rick George, if you're listening, and I know you're not, but if you are, 10 a.m. games are fine with me in September, mid-October, we had those 11.30 Nebraska games when we were doing the going back and forth between uh, on Friday after Thanksgiving, you know, Colorado, Nebraska, Texas, Texas A&M, and they would flip them every year. And so there were some years that we had the early game at home against Nebraska. They kicked off at 11.30, and where our seats were row 72, <laughs> section 2018, I remember fans cheering as the sun Slowly, row by row, <laughs> crept up. You know, we were blocked by the sun until like halfway through the second quarter. We were freezing to death. And so if we have a 10 o'clock game in December, it ain't going to be pretty for those sitting in the stands. So yeah. personally, I have no problem having early games because I don't like writing up my game stories at midnight. Um, I'd rather play at 10 a.m. than 10 p.m. But, yeah, just... Please, Rick, if you're going to schedule any 10 a.m. games, make them when it's a nice, sunny, warm fall, September, maybe mid-October uh, morning, rather than playing Utah on the Friday <laughs> after Thanksgiving or the Saturday after Thanksgiving at 10 a.m. But the reality is we probably will. There's a chance that that could happen. But, yeah. again, if you see it's good and you talk about uh, I was listening to a national podcast, and they were talking about the relevance of Nebraska, you know, which has not been relevant for you know many many years. Thank you, Paul Feinbaum, delusional fans in Nebraska. <laughs> um, but they were talking about the ratings for the Colorado Nebraska games. That just talking about 
playing in you know, the Nebraska-Oklahoma game this fall is going to be a blowout, but it's going to get tremendous ratings. So the memory is still there, you know, that Nebraska being relevant, Colorado being relevant. If we have a good team, if we have a nationally ranked team, we will get good ratings, and good ratings begets more money, begets better recruits, begets better players, begets better quality of play, begets better rankings. So, um, you know, you hear lots of recruiting stories about how all the top, there's like five of the top seven quarterbacks in the country this season are all from the West Coast, and none of them play for West Coast teams. You know, they're playing for Clemson, they're playing for Ohio State, they're playing, you know, playing for teams that recruited them say, well, if you want to play in the college football playoff, if you want to be on TV, national television, Saturday nights, you got to come east. You can't play even for USC or Oregon because you're not going to get on television. That's an unfortunate truth. And we don't have a celebrity coach Yeah, in the Pac-12 now. You know, Chip Kelly was supposed to be. That didn't work out that well. Herm Edwards. Herm Edwards. Maybe, but we just don't have, because we don't have the success, we don't have the coaches that get the attention. Um, and this has become a really interesting world where the coaches are sometimes the biggest celebrities. Yeah. And the SEC has them. Yeah. And how that's going to work out and whether or not, as much as I love Carl Durrell, I don't know that he has the personality to be that guy. Plus, he's a David Shaw. Mm-hmm. You know, David Shaw is a quality coach, but he is not Ed Orgeron. Yeah, he, yeah, he does not have that charisma. But you, you know, you shouldn't have to have that charisma. You know, that you can have a quality team with a quality. Tom Landry, going back, you know, far enough, was not the same as you know Pete Carroll running up and down, you know, well, the sidelines. If if you want to. You know, I know I have to turn around and spit three times after I say this name, but Tom Osborne wasn't ever going to win any personality awards. Yeah. <laughs> but he was an effective coach. You know, didn't win a national championship until his 25th year. But uh, <laughs> but who was Cal- but he was a quality coach. Won nine games every year because, well, you know, you know well. Played Kansas a lot. <laughs> and, had, and had 160 players on his roster. But we won't divest too much because I do want to talk about one other way of getting the Pac-12 back into relevance, potentially, and that would be expanding the playoff. Now, not surprisingly, Nick Saban recently came out and said that that was a bad idea, that <laughs> diluted the product and his poor players would have to play more games and the bowl games would not be as important and as relevant as they are now if you have more playoff games. And uh, boo-hoo-hoo. Yeah. Yeah, the guys with the monopoly are never big on competition. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I think Ohio State's not big on conf- you know, playoff expansion, nor is Clemson, right. nor is Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. But the rest of the planet right. not only hopes for it, expects it, maybe not hopes for it, but it certainly expects it. So The reason we-, we expect it is that there are dump trucks of cash sitting out there waiting for that additional week or two weeks of college football playoff. That's the reality of this. It's why we have a 67-69 team NCAA tournament. Every additional game gets you additional dollars. That's the reality. And as everybody says about the NCAA tournament, we all love the underdogs the first two weeks. And then 
Alabama can come back and win it all. But yeah. there is money, there is attention, there is publicity to be had by some level of expansion. And if anything we know about college football is eventually the dollars get what they want. So do you want six? Do you want eight? Do you want 16? I think probably that is how it will go. I think you will have a couple of years of a 16 or an 18 playoff. Yeah, there is still some, what do we do about finals? But we've never cared about that for the players in the FCS. Yes. So um, I would suspect my preference would be immediately go to another week and another eight-team um, playoff, if nothing else, because maybe that's one more day somebody can knock off Alabama. Well, and having eight teams, you got certainly an argument that you have the five-power conference champions. So regardless, nine and three Whatever, rank 24th, Colorado, Arizona State, USC, whoever gets in. If you have a six-team playoff, it's harder to make the argument that Power 5 all get in automatically because they only have one extra seat at the table. So you might end up, you know, not having a guarantee for the Pac-12 conference, which is what we're trying to help here. And most people agree that for the Pac-12 to be more relevant, they have to be in the playoff. And if they can't get in the playoff with four teams, then we have to get more teams in the playoffs so we can at least play. Yeah. And, and you know, just for college football overall, um, if we have the big five and then three either additional big five or please at least one of the group next of five, one of the group of five in, because like I said, on the first week, everybody loves the underdog. Yeah. And if you have those first games, the first round games, on campus sites, yeah. that's going to generate tremendous interest. Even if it's Boise State at <coughs> Alabama, or you have USC having to travel to Clemson, you don't think that's going to draw attention? You don't think that's going to draw interest? Those are you, know, you don't think you're going to have a sellout crowd for that? Of course you're going to have a sellout crowd for that. So, yeah, those intrasectional games that you can have will be – Amazingly popular, and like you say, bring out the Brinks trucks full of money, and it's going to be very popular. And didn't we realize this year that the idea that we're going to kill the lower-level bowls is not something a lot of us are going to shed a lot of tears over? The cancellation of the... I don't know. Did we have a pool on weed eater bowl this year? <laughs> I think we've gotten rid of that. Or whatever the, else. We got the tax slayer bowl. Yeah. I mean, we got, uh, yeah, we got several, the Boca Raton bowl yeah. and, uh, yeah, there's still a number of bowls out there that, uh, and they are free to try to survive. I'm not trying to kill them, but I'm not one of these people who is in favor of delaying what has to be done for the playoff so that a bunch of guys in Boca Raton or Dallas can wear bad coats and, you know, walk around and cost schools money to go to these damn games. Yeah. It's, uh, I, you know, I hope they don't die because I like going to bowl games. I like CU having a postseason. I like CU having 15 extra practices. This year is kind of more like 10 with the Alamo Bowl and everything. But at least 
CU was one of two teams that actually got. It was just CU and Oregon that went to bowl games. So CU actually got some extra practices in. So that can't hurt when you've got young teams. And again, it gets back to the whole developing, trying to come up with a Nate Landman or someone like that that might develop. You get them to develop a little more quickly if you get extra practices. That's just the nature of the beast. And if you have teams like Alabama, Ohio State, Clemson, Oklahoma that routinely go to bowl games, whereas other teams are sitting home in December, the rich get richer, the poor get poorer. And with the money that's coming in and the way things are going, wait for the, we'll talk about, probably have a whole podcast just on the name, image, and likeness crap that's coming down. Sorry, forgive my French, but it is going to be amazingly difficult road for schools to navigate. And I don't know if it's not going to turn out that the rich will get richer in the name, image, and likeness game. And the poor will get poorer. And we're going to have that divide grow wider and wider and wider. But that is a topic for another day. Another day. Um, We had a good time watching Colorado, a beautiful spring day. I was talking with uh, Ben today um, about uh, the seven years undergrad law school. That was about, I think, three, maybe four of my finals weeks were there was snow. And it's just as likely to snow in Boulder in May as it is in, you know, any other month of the year. Uh, But it was a beautiful day. Sorry that only a thousand people were allowed to attend. Hopefully, Boulder County will be happy that the University of Colorado is requiring all faculty, staff, and students be vaccinated for the fall semester. That may help put more seats in the stands for the fall games. Um, But again, that's going to be a topic we're going to talk about that's going to be developing over the course of the summer. So thank you for hosting me again, as you have for decades. (laughs) And we'll hope to do this again real soon. Well, love being the Highlands Ranch outpost to see you at the game, and we'll continue to serve in that role for as long as we can. Thank you for listening. As a reminder, please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast at your favorite site, and if you're so inclined, leave us a review. The off-season for college football does not mean an off-season for the See You at the Game podcast. We will be back shortly with another episode which will include another See with the Game mailbag. So free at any time to drop us a line and question at cuatthegame at gmail.com. It was great getting to walk into Folsom Field once again this spring after an 18-month hiatus, and great getting to see a thousand fans clad in black and gold. Until we can get together again, be well, stay safe, and go Buffs! Thank you for listening to our See You at the Game podcast. For links to articles and stories referenced in this podcast, go to cuatthegame.com. That's the letter C, the letter U, at thegame.com. If you have comments or suggestions, you can leave them on the website or send an email to cuatthegame at gmail.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please be sure to subscribe and share it with your fellow Buff fans. Until next time when we will again see you at the game.